Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you today. Professor Stuart Phillips is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out his first appearance on episode 71 of Boundless Body Radio, which is one of our most downloaded and talked about episodes of all time. Stuart Phillips is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health. He is the director of the Physical Activity Center of Excellence and the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research, and lab lead for the Exercise Metabolism Research Group. Stuart's research is focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on human skeletal muscle protein turnover. He is keenly interested in diet and exercise-induced changes in body composition. Stuart believes that a little bit of exercise is better than no exercise and aims to encourage more physical activity in older adults. He has more than 24,000 career citations and 220 original scientific research and review papers. Professor Stu Phillips, what an honor it is to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Casey. It's great to be back. Uh, great to have you. First things first, happy Stanley Cuff playoff season. <laughs> yeah, thanks. thanks. Best. Yeah, that's why you can see the bags under my eyes. It's, uh, you know, no those West Coast games, they, they really get me. <laughs> no sleep, for sure. No, it's the best postseason in all of sports. And you are in, you're just outside of Toronto. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Just outside of Toronto, a, a long-suffering Maple Leafs fan. So, uh, yep. <laughs> well, that's great. I hope by the time this airs that they are still in the playoffs and doing well. As of now, they're doing okay. You you would be uh, amongst a lot of people in hoping that they're still in the playoffs. That's for sure. Yeah, they, they, they're doing okay. I think uh, they, they people are optimistic this year. They are every year, of course, but uh, sure. this year maybe more than than others. Yeah, sure. Well, that's great. Um, I you know I, I'm so glad the league got back to normal after the pandemic um, kind of subsided. Mm-hmm. But it was really fun. The season it was either last year or the season before. I think it was last year where all the Canadian teams Canadian teams excuse me played all the other Canadian yeah. teams. That was a riot. Yeah, yeah, the the Northern Division. So good. (laughs) Such good hockey. (laughs) That's great. Well, as much as I want to talk to you just about hockey, we'll talk about what your expertise is really in, which is muscle and protein turnover, which I absolutely am fascinated with. Um, For the listener who maybe is not familiar with you or your work, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got interested in this? Yeah, sure. I I mean, I I, I did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. Uh, I was really interested. This was in the era pre- you know, sequencing of the human genome. And there was a time when we didn't know the sequence. And, uh, you know, so molecular biology was just kind of getting uh, getting going. Uh, but it was people that I was interested in. I've been an athlete, varsity athlete, my whole undergraduate career, played rugby the whole time, played it, you know, multitude of team sports growing up, hockey, football, rugby, soccer, that sort of thing. So uh, I took a, uh, a course in my fourth year, actually, because I broke my leg playing rugby um, in, uh, in, you know, basically in the lab. Uh, and for me, that just sort of lit me up. I, I was really interested in that. And then I took in my last semester a nutrition class and uh, was was really inspired by the professor and and really made a sort of a big dent in my life and forced me to think a lot about what I wanted to do, which I thought was medicine. Uh, but I decided research and, uh, you know, here I am. Well, not 24, more than 24. I've been 24 years at McMaster university now. So must be close to about 30 years after that period of time, but it's, it's gone really well. I, I I love my job. It's, it's, it's a great uh, place to be great place to work. Uh, I work with a really, really talented group of individuals, uh, students, and, uh, they keep me going. So, uh, yeah. yeah. 
That's great. I mean, the amount of research you guys put out is incredible. You're posting stuff all the time with something new that either you or somebody else in your department is really working on. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's, you know, that's a testimony. I, I, I often tell people I just look good in, in the reflected hard work of others. And, uh, you know, the key to success is to surround yourself with uh, highly motivated and, uh, you know, um, good individuals. And then hopefully you look good in the, in the limelight. So uh, it's definitely been the case for me. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I take some credit for, for that, but, but the, the people that do the work are, are the ones that really deserve the pats on the back for sure. Well, that's great. I think that's slightly modest, but, um, I know they get a, a lot of credit as well. Um, I wanted no, to I open, <laughs> wanted to open this conversation with somebody who's an expert in exercise and nutrition. If, if somebody were to approach you on the street and say, what is the best way to be healthy? How would you respond to that? Yeah. 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 Well, I don't think you can do, you know, all of one and, and, and not have the other. So, you know, I think, however, if you were to say, you know, I've got X much energy or time to put into one thing, what would I put it into? And I, I would have to pick exercise as the better of the two choices. Uh, and I know that that I think some people often are stuck on the, uh, you know, you can't outrun a bad diet sort of mantra. And, and that's true to maybe the extent that if outrunning a bad diet is around weight loss and only weight loss and like forever weight loss, uh, then you would, you would be forced to think that for sure. But from a health standpoint, uh, I don't think that to me anyway, that there's much question that uh, being physically active or engaging in, in, in exercise, um, there's no downside to it. And we're, we're learning more and more. And you said, you know, departmental colleagues, I have one here at McMaster, Jen Heiss, who just wrote an outstanding book, uh, move the body, heal the mind. And it was, it's really about the link between physical activity and mental health. And, you know, it's something we're beginning to peel the layers back on now. And it it is, it's shockingly effective. And in fact, there are even trials comparing it head to head against antidepressant medication and uh, physical activity does just as well. So, I mean, that's pretty powerful medicine. And not that diet can't do a lot of things. It can. And, and you know, and people demonstrate day in and day out that it does. But if I, you know, if you got a fully charged battery and you said, I can put this energy into dieting or I can put it into exercise, I'd say, exercise. That's great. No, I oscillate on those two things all the time when I'm trying to think of what's more important, but you're absolutely right. It does seem like the research has coming back stronger and stronger and stronger that the benefits of exercise on our mental health is incredible in many, many different ways. And it doesn't really seem to matter whether you're 12 or 43 or whether you're 87, it seems important throughout our entire lives. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I think one of the things is um, we're we're beginning to appreciate what early life exposures mean. And so you mentioned 12, but we're going back now as far as people uh, when moms are carrying their babies, how they're patterning these kids by the habits that they adopt while they're pregnant. So, I mean, we're really coming into uh, some unprecedented territory when it comes to, you know, what our behaviors have and what the impact that they have on, on our health long term is. And I think a lot of people are uh, pretty impressed with what it is that exercise is being uh, shown to do. So I, I'm learning uh, still uh, and, and have been just been uh, privileged to, to, to be around such great people that have taught me a lot about things that I, I understood very little about. If you'd asked me 
you know, even five years ago, um, you know, you said, does exercise change anything, you know, to do with your, you know, your brain? I'd be like, well, yeah, I don't know, a few things, but now, you know, fast forward five years and it's, it's astonishing. So, uh, yeah, we're learning lots. Uh, diet's still important. Uh, you know, you, you, you got to get the two in there. Um, but, but exercise really kind of rules the roost, I think. Yeah, that's great. Very well explained. When when a listener hears you say exercise is very important, there must be mm. a very unique and individual um, thought for each one of the listeners on what exercise yeah. is. That could be yeah. a spin class. That could be you know power lifting. That could be a bodybuilding show. That could be yeah. '80s aerobics. Like who knows? Uh, all kinds yeah. of different things. So when you're talking about exercise, what what do you exactly mean? Can it be really broad and include all of those things, or is it when you think of the benefits of exercise, are you thinking about particular types of exercise? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, the umbrella that fits over the top of all of that is physical activity, right? And can we can be physically active. You know, somebody said, oh, I was, you know, I was out in my backyard, I was raking, and then I did, I cut this, and then I planted this. I'm like, that's physical activity. And in fact, you know, obviously, uh, we're learning just how little physical activity you can, you'd have to do to overcome uh, what a lot of us spend most of our day doing, which is sitting down watching a screen. Um, so, you know, to be clear, uh, it's sort of the biggest reduction in risk for any chronic disease happens when you take someone who's who's doing nothing to doing something. And that can be as little as, you know, 15 minutes of walking a day. And, you know, and it doesn't have to be sort of power walking, just just going out for a stroll. And uh, so, you know, that's that's the broad prescription. But the specific exercise, like you're targeted, like I have a goal in mind with this. So I, I want to get fitter. I want to get healthier. I'm going to get on the bike. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to a Pilates class. I'm going to, you know, do something um, that's pre-planned and concerted in terms of effort and time. And that's exercise. And, and you're absolutely spot on. Like, I mean, you know, the types of exercise are, are boundless. And I think that the message, the, the real takeaway is that you shouldn't confine yourself to feeling like exercise has to be a knockdown, drag them out. If I don't sweat, it's not worth it type of activity. When in fact, um, you know, we're figuring out now that it's, you know, any sort of pattern of human movement is, uh, is going to be beneficial. And then obviously people want to say, well, I'm interested in running, 10 kilometers, a marathon, uh, you know, something like that. Well, by all means, then you've got to do a lot more than just get up, obviously. But the health benefits start, you know, with the first few steps. And uh, I try and make that point over and over to people. But, you know, clearly, uh, probably your audience has got some people in there going, no, man, I'm, I'm exercising five or six days a week. You know, what, what more can I do? And, you know, the answer is, Probably not a lot, but, uh, you know, power to you if, if that's what you do and that's what gets you out of bed and that's what motivates you. So, uh, for sure exercises a lot of things to a lot of different people. Yeah. So at the very most general level, the beginning level, the most important thing to do is find something that you enjoy that you will do consistently regardless of whatever that is. That would be like step one. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. People say, you know, what's the best type of exercise? And the answer is always the, the one you can stick to. Right. So don't don't take up something like if you if you're one of these people said, you know, they say, well, you know, I really kind of hate like lifting weights. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame. Uh, but I love going to yoga. And I'm like, well, have you ever tried the sort of a power yoga where you're doing some of these types of moves? I never thought of that. And I said, well, you know, that's that's your body weight that you're moving around. I said, that's a, that's a good enough weight to start out with so don't don't feel like you know you need to lift 
something heavy or do it in here. I said, have you tried, you know, resistance bands? And people are like, oh, I've never tried that. Well, you know, so there's lots of different prescriptions, lots of ways of doing it. And, uh, you know, I think whenever, whenever people say, you know, I don't like doing this or, you know, that's not something, then my answer is always, well, you know, maybe try something else, you know, definitely find something you enjoy. Yeah, that's great. I like to kind of point people in the direction of finding activities that even if you told them like this activity wouldn't be healthy for you when it actually is, you want to find the things that you would do regardless. Like I wake up yeah. really early on Wednesday mornings to go to the rink and talk smack with my hockey buddies. And like, I don't, yeah. I don't ever miss, I don't miss that because I absolutely love it. And I think yeah. the more people find those activities that they, I just, I, I love this. I'm going to keep doing this because it's just fun and enjoyable. I think that's kind of the right place to go. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, that highlights one of the things too, is that there are some people that, that for them exercise is a solo activity. You know, they all, they're, they're happy when they're on their own and they, they go and do their own thing. And over time, you know, I was always a team sport athlete. Um, but I, I exercise for the most part by myself now, but it's always a great boon to me to come back and, uh, put the skates on and skate with some buddies and, and, and talk about how great we used to be. Um, and you know, for some people that's, that's what it's all about. That's, that's the thing that they do. And so, you know, I'm always saying to people, they, you know, it's what I'm doing. Is that enough? Like, I feel like I'm gaining some weight and I'm like, are you moving around? Are you doing it regularly? Are you having fun? And if it's check, check, check that I'm like, you know what, um, you're, you're doing the right things. Yeah, that's great. Also very well explained. It, it, as we get more specific and people want more specific outcomes, especially when it comes to health span and lifespan. So lifespan is like, we want to be able to live a long life, which is great, but we also don't want to live 80 years and have 60 of those years be with terrible health and on all kinds of medications right. and metabolically right. healthy. We want health span. Also, we want to be healthy and active and, you know, the idea of like live long and drop dead kind of a thing or go to bed one night at yeah. 90 um, yeah. Yeah. after skating with your buds at 90. And, and, you know, you yeah. don't wake up. Um, when yeah. we think about those things, are there more specific applications that we can make for exercise as well? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, uh, you, you make the point really well. Uh, we, we've added 30 plus years to our life expectancy in the last century. And, you know, a lot of that has been, you know, obviously public health, clean water and nutritional supplies and everything else like that and hospital systems. But, you know, eventually it's about prolonging life. And the, the question then you have to ask yourself is what's the quality of your life? If you have a chronic disease and you're being cared for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I'm a great fan of uh, listening to there's about three longevity type podcasters uh, I listen to. And uh, I'm, all, I'm always thinking, you know, I don't want to live to be 120 and feel like 120. You know, I'm, I'm quite good with, as you say, the you know, 90 and just drop off the table. That's, that's cool. Um, I, I do think uh, we're beginning to appreciate now that, um, you know, there's a lot of longevity extending, but also health, health span uh, extending diets that are out there. Uh, the tough part about translating that evidence is that it's mostly in, it's mostly in rodents, right? And, and I'm still unclear whether that's going to translate to the human condition, but, you know, definitely keeping your your body weight within a certain range and not getting too overweight is health expanding and it's uh, it's life extending as well. Uh, physical activity is a tough one. Uh, on average, we think it adds. You know, if you're hitting the sort of generic 150 minutes of aerobic two days a week of resistance, uh, and if you are, you're in a pretty elite group. 
uh, then you can expect to live about another four to five years. And your health span is a little better too. So it checks a lot of boxes. Um, the caloric restriction stuff, the protein restriction stuff, I'm I'm still, I still squint a little bit. I need to see more data that comes from, you know, primates, uh, but definitely all the human studies that are out there, you know, from a dietary perspective, if you can keep that energy intake on the lower side, uh, I advocate a higher protein intake, as you know. So, uh, you know, that for me is, uh, I think, a, a really valuable way to live. Try and preserve your muscle mass as much as you can. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. The muscle mass is something I definitely wanted to ask you about. When I think of health span, lifespan and health span, the two things that really rise to the top that I would consider the highest priorities would first of all probably be VO2 max. And a lot of people mm. talk about VO2 max as your lung capacity, obviously you're measuring oxygen and mm. how much oxygen, but also the number that most people are used to seeing when they're looking at VO2 max, it's, it's relative to the person's body weight. So to be able yes. to have a good VO2 max, you not only need to have a good lung capacity, you also need to have a low weight. And if you're 500 yeah. pounds, uh, that number is going to be low. And I would assume you have all kinds of other health issues that go along with that. And so, you know, the lung capacity and the aerobic conditioning, I think is one. And the other one that I always think about is muscle mass and preserving <laughs> muscle mass through your life in that way. Is that something that you would agree with or disagree with? Is there anything we're missing? Yeah, no, you're spot on uh, with, with the VO2 max argument. And, you know, I, I do think that there's been some people that are, are sort of appealing to say that this is kind of like the fifth vital sign. So we've talked about body temperature. We talked about respiration, heart rate, blood pressure, and somebody says your VO2 max. And obviously, you know, it's easy to measure one, two, three, four in a, in a physician's office and pretty tough to measure your VO2 max. But, you know, and it's ridiculously predictive of uh, morbidity and mortality. So your risk for, you know, basically everything from cancer to cardiovascular disease, you can, you can get a pretty good uh, estimate of your risk just from your VO2 max. And, and people sort of ask why, you know, it's, it's hearts and lungs and everything else like that. And, and, and my explanation is to say that actually it's something that crosses every, like a number of body systems, right? Because first your brain has to generate a motor pattern to move your muscles and your muscles move. And then that it changes your blood flow and that increases your heart rate. And then you've got your respiration rate. So you've got your cardio respiratory skeletal well, musculoskeletal, and even your neural system that have to function really well for, for, for everything to come, come together to give you that number, as you said, and then, yep, you got to put in the body weight uh, function. The only people that defy that of course are, uh, these rowers and, uh, and and I've seen a few of them who are just uh, men and women, uh, very big uh, individuals. And you know, if you scaled their VO2 max and divided by their body weight, uh, it's not as impressive a number, but the absolute amount of oxygen that they can move is enormous. And you know, because they're in on a bike or in a in a canoe or a kayak or they're they're sculling in an eight or something like that. Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so they, they, they're, they're kind of like the, the horses of, of human VO2s. Uh, they're impressive machines. But um, yeah, if you look at the, you know, Elliot Kipchoge break in two hours and you know, in New York city that he's, he's not a, not a big guy. So <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I used a metabolic cart for over a decade and we noticed the same things. Like if you looked at absolute oxygen vo2 which is just how much oxygen can you take in it was rowers were always the best yeah. it would be like six thousand milliliters a minute or something they could take in yeah yeah, it's, yeah 
massive massive volumes yeah they they, they really are horses uh yeah it's impressive that's crazy. Uh, and if you've ever seen a horse vo2 that's an impressive feat too because <laughs> they really start flying and and they move some impressive volumes of air but yeah rowers uh, i've seen some cyclists push numbers that on a relative per kilo body weight basis you know track cyclists would probably be like no you know that's you know, still high sixties, but then you look an absolute there. Uh, yeah. They're close to six liters and it's, that's, that's big, yeah. uh, but they're, they're also big people. So right. uh, impressive on, on a lot of uh, levels for yeah. sure. Interesting. Well, the gym I worked at where I used the metabolic cart wouldn't let me bring horses in and I don't think the mask would have fit uh, them anyway. Yeah, so. no, it's, it's a pretty specialized uh, metabolic cart. You got to get going for that for sure. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's awesome. Um, for somebody that's listening to this and, and is hearing like, okay, so mus preserving muscle is important. Adding muscle, getting yeah. strong is important. But I'm also thinking... I don't want to be this big muscular guy or most mm -hmm. females think they're going to get really bulky. They're not going to step on stage. We don't want any of that. We want to maintain function. Why is muscle still so important for people and maybe some ways that are surprising to most people? Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, people who are afraid, uh, the fear, uh, of bulking up, um, you need to appreciate that if you're going to bulk, it, it takes a specific lifting regime. And then in combination with some pretty uh, heavy uh, dietary advice, you, you're basically fueling the machine and you're kind of overstuffing it. So it's sort of almost forced eating. Um, uh, I call it the seafood diet and people say seafood. And I'm like, yeah, you see it, you eat it. Uh, and if you're doing that and you're lifting consistently, you do begin to get bigger, but nobody's going to get to the size or shape of a, uh, a lot of people you see in a lot of magazines without probably, well, first some external help. Um, but at the same time, you know, good sets of genes and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm always conscious of saying to women, you know, when they start lifting weights, they believe it's all got to be sort of small, very lightweight, so they don't get bigger. And my point is, you know, if, if at any point you're doing this and you start to get, you know, so big that you're worried, you let me know. Uh, and I've yet to hear from anybody yet. Uh, I guess the surprising wrinkle that, you know, not just us, but lots of others are sort of figuring out now is that maybe the equation has more to do not with the amount of weight that you lift, but the amount of, I, I use effort that you put in. So, so long as you get up to a high level of effort, uh, even with lighter weights, you can get pretty substantial muscle growth, not as, uh, big a strength increase because you need to practice lifting heavy weights to do that. Um, but you can get a lot of the benefits from a muscle standpoint with, with lighter weights for sure. Interesting. Um, I've really appreciated the work of Dr. Doug McGuff. Um, he's the author of body yeah. by science and you yeah. know, it was the first time I've been introduced to high intensity training. And a lot of people think of yeah. high intensity training. They think of high intensity interval training. And so they think, mm -hmm. you know, ropes and jumping around and throwing kettlebells yeah. and medicine ball slams. And what Doug McGuff does yeah. is includes a very high amount of intensity, but does so at such a slow speed. You're just taking whatever weight yeah. you're pushing up to, you know, pretty damn near failure on, on some of these yeah. lifts. Is that kind of what you're yeah. talking about as far as effort? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't like to use the word failure, although, you know, people like, because you fail in a lift and I'm like, but they tried really hard. So they didn't really fail. They just <laughs> didn't quite make it great. So, or they get to the point where they, you know, they've got the sewing machine arm and they just can't lift it anymore. So, you know, we sort of say fatigue or whatever, and you get to the point where you just can't do one more rep. Um, and that's like flat out. Yeah. Like that's it. I'm, I'm done. Um, 
And in the lab, that's where we take people because we're trying to illustrate the principle. And to your point, you know, Doug McGuff's work is a great example of, uh, you know, not doing the high intensity interval stuff, but essentially using time under tension. In other words, more sort of time spent lifting the weight um, as the driver of trying to get to fatigue. And, you know, the point I make to people is once you get to muscular fatigue, your muscles trying to drive every what we call motor unit. It's trying to turn on everything, trying to uh, facilitate the effort, but you just don't get there. And it's uncomfortable. Uh, most people, you got to be pretty mentally tough, I think, to handle it. But in, in our experience, um, when we talk to people who are older and maybe not quite as bent on, you know, this is where I got to get to, we say try and reach an eight or a nine out of 10. And we have a big org scale on the wall and say, try and get into that, that sort of red orange zone up there. And they, they're like, okay, I can, I can do that. And, and some days they're like, you know, it's, I'm not feeling good. And I'm like, okay, it's today. It's a blue, you know, it's a blue zone or something like that. So, um, but if you can get into that eight or nine out of 10, and if you, you've got to do it and some people can all the time, uh, go 10 out of 10, then, then go for it. But that's where that's that, that pushing yourself, you know, and getting closer to that ceiling is that's what's really going to promote the adaptation for sure. Interesting. Um, I don't know if you're much of a fan of the Peter Atia, the drive podcast. It's one of my yeah. favorites. I never miss a week. And yeah. This, I the, tune into Peter. Yeah. 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 This last week, um, he did a second episode with Lane Norton and they talked about, Oh, okay. Oh, it's fascinating. You would love it. It's right up yeah. your house. Um, and they talked yeah, about yeah. getting to muscle failure and Lane described like doing very, very, very heavy squats to the point that he couldn't he couldn't fire his lower back anymore. And it took him like five minutes to even like catch his breath on the ground again. Like that's yeah. like true, true failure. And the point that he was trying to make is like, like getting to muscle fatigue. I, I love the way you explained that, by the way, saying muscle fatigue versus muscle failure. Um, but getting to like yeah. a true muscle fatigue, it, if it's a 10, but then you can't move or do anything for like two or three weeks mm -hmm. versus like, mm -hmm. let's get these sets to go to like a, what you said, like an eight out of 10 for difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. You still get yeah. most of the benefit but you're able to, you know, not be destroyed two or three days later and you can repeat that yeah. process. And that's probably more beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I know Lane, uh, he, he probably even would admit it on, on camera on a podcast that I tried to get him to come to my lab, and do a postdoc after he did his oh, PhD yeah. with Ron Raymond. He turned me down. He said, you know, I've got this thing planned. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a social media guy. And I was like, what, you know, what the heck? <laughs> anyway, so uh, I, I'm still I'm still debating with him whether it was a, ba a better choice or not. But uh, he seems to have done pretty well for himself. So <laughs> I didn't listen to that one on on, on uh, Peter's podcast. But uh, I got a lot of respect for Lane. I got a lot of respect, obviously, for you know how he runs his show with respect to you know his physique, obviously, and his strength. But you're right. Uh, you know, he's reaching for a point in that maximum strength realm of things that most, you know, mere mortals, uh, definitely people like me are like, you know, that's, that's not where I'm going to go. Um, so yeah, these days, uh, I, my mantra is I, I live to fight another day. So I want to be as active as I can basically day in and day out. Um, that's my, you know, lifespan, health span goal. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the downslope now. Uh, <laughs> you know, people say when does sarcopenia start? And my comment is always, I'm pretty sure it's about 57 and they're like 57. And I'm like, maybe next year be about 58. And I said, <laughs> it might be a personal reflection or something, but you get my point is that, uh, you know, it, it's all about goals. Uh, I, I, I don't want to do something where I can't train the next day. So I don't push myself to where, 
you know, Lane probably takes himself on a fairly regular basis. So yeah, to your point, uh, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, I'm like, I can walk away with that. Like I, I, I have done some workouts under supervision where somebody is uh, yelling at me. Uh, that's my background. I'm a team sport guy. I used to love getting yelled at as a motivator by coaches. Uh, and, and you get to the point where you're, you're on the floor and you're just like, what I just do to myself. But, but I, I find it really difficult to do that to myself personally now. So, uh, and then, then I think, ah, you know, what the heck I'm training tomorrow anyway. <laughs> what do I need to do? But, yeah. Externally driven. I can get there, but, uh, but not by myself. And, and that's, that's true mental toughness in my books for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I think, I think, you know, at a certain level, when you're dealing with people that have very, very specific goals, obviously your planning needs to be very specific. Your program design needs to be very specific. And we talk about, you know, developing muscle strength, but we also talk about developing muscle hypertrophy and those two mm-hmm. things, muscle growth. And those two things are definitely correlated. And I think if you get one, you certainly get some of the other to some extent, and it's maybe debatable. Um, for, for most people, for most of us mere mortals, do we need to consider the, the training variables to achieve muscle strength versus is muscle, muscle hypertrophy or muscle growth? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, I'm always fond of um, pointing out to people when they, they say, you know, I say, you know, well, you should exercise. And, and most people would say, oh, what should I do? And the easiest thing for somebody is to open up their front door, go for a walk, of course. Uh, lifting weights requires you know, you know, a little bit of knowledge, right? It's not something you can just immediately do. You can't just, you know, pop out and, and lift some weights. It's probably good to get a bit of instruction if you've never done it before. And then people notice that it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. So it's uh, how many sets, how many reps, what kind of weight, free weights, machine weights. And so the, the number of variables becomes, you know, hard to imagine. And I, you know, my own personal feeling is that that in, for some people becomes a bit of a barrier, um, because they're just, they walk into a gym and they're just absolutely overwhelmed. And so, you know, I'm always like, if you, if you have the means, try and find somebody that can counsel you on how to do that, that you like working with. So a personal trainer, whoever it is, um, or, you know, at the simplest level, I mean, there's probably about, you know, four or five movements that if you only had 20, 30 minutes and you had something that was heavy enough, or you had some bands that to get you to that seven or eight or nine out of 10, um, you, you're, you're probably good to go, but then people's goals become more specific. I want to get bigger. I want to get stronger in this, these, these lifts, uh, whatever it is, or they've got sports specific goals. And then the training becomes quite complex and there's a lot of pieces to fit in there, but as a generic prescription, and these are the numbers, you know, the, the latest, at least that I'm aware of is that, um, at least in the United States and Canada, probably about 10% of people self-report that they're doing any form of resistance exercise. Now, self-report is notoriously people want to portray the best part of themselves. So I won't say they lie. Maybe they over-exaggerate a little bit. So let's just say it's probably more like, you know, five or 6%, which means there are a lot of people out there that that aren't doing anything to keep their, their strength and their muscle mass as they get older or at any time in their lives. So uh, that to me is, you know, there's a, there's a large proportion of the population that, that needs to be introduced to a, the health benefits, and then b the enjoyment of, uh, you know, lifting a weight and, and working hard in the gym. Wow. Uh, that is and I know those numbers kind of, 
people grind that and they go, well, I'm in the gym and it's always busy. I said, but yeah, but it's this, if you notice and come at the same time, it's always the same people. Like you might see a few new people, but there's the hardcore like you and the, and you know, and, and I'm like, we're the weird ones, actually. We're, we're not the norm. So um, I think that there's a big portion of the population that's, that's yet to learn and master even some of the basic stuff that I think would be uh, important to maintain strength as we get a bit older. That is much, much, much lower of a number than I would have ever imagined. And regardless of the accuracy, that's telling a very strong story. Yeah. I mean, even if it were double that and it were 20%, that still means there's 80% of the, so, and it's much higher for aerobic type exercise and people hitting the guidelines is generally closer to 25 by self-report. So it's still probably pretty low, but when you put the two of them together, you do get down to a really small proportion of individuals. And that's when you have to think, wow, it's a shame that, you know, so many people are missing out on a better quality of life. Uh, a better health span and probably uh, extra years of life as well. Um, But for a little bit of um, physical activity. So, wow. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's very low. Um, Really interesting. So, so we would assume that most people listening to this podcast, at least care somewhat. They're listening to you. They're listening (laughs) to us talk about protein and lifting and all this stuff. Um, (laughs) You mentioned effort as being like really high up on your priority list. You also mentioned all those other variable sets, reps, volume, Mm -hmm. time, time under tension, like all kinds of different things for most people, again, is effort and pushing yourself to a fairly difficult effort, especially like eventually once you're more used to lifting weights, is that pretty much the number one? priority for you and all the other things like sets reps we can say yeah they're important but probably not a huge you know determination of how healthy someone's going to be yeah entirely dependent on your goal um you know i have a good uh, friend colleague uh, brad schoenfeld he's he's made some really great and important uh, discoveries in this field by uh looking at meta-analyses of data to say, you know, what is the most important variable? It does really appear that it's kind of boiling down to some measure of how much volume you lift. So sets times reps times number of times you do it in a, in a given week. Um, you know, and so from that perspective, if you're somebody who's really focused on hypertrophy, then volume is probably a big driver. If you're somebody who's focused on, you know, strength, load is probably a big driver. So, you know, want to be strong, lift heavy stuff, want to be big, lift stuff to the point of fatigue and do a lot of it, uh, you know, to really boil it down. Um, effort is the, it's just the internal experience of uh, basically activating all of what we call motor units. And so those are, those are the muscle fibers inside your muscle. Once you get to a, a point where it's a high degree of effort, you're trying to drive the activation of all of your muscle fibers, no matter how you get there. If you get there through a heavy load, so be it. But if you get there through a light load and more repetitions, it's a similar pattern of motor unit activation in the end. But the internal variable that you can feel and that I could say to somebody, I said, you know, after you've given them a bit of experience, I said, I want you to go to nine out of 10, where a 10 out of 10 is like the weight might, you you need a spotter. You, you know, basically the 10th rep is the fail rep. So you need the need to do it safely and have a rack or you need a spotter. Um, nine out of 10 or repetition in reserve is like, there's one rep in reserve. There's two, three reps in reserve. And the closer you get to one or two effort is higher, uh, you know, to Lane's point, if you collapse afterwards and you're out on the floor, you know, that's, 
that's a high degree of effort. <laughs> totally. Whenever I want to like push my clients, I'll tell them like, go as hard as you can. They'll say, okay, this is the last rep. And I'll tell them like, look, if you do one more rep, I will give you a free month of training. Sure enough, yeah. they typically can do one more rep. I know it's amazing. And then I'll say like, no, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I'm not going to give yeah, you a free yeah, month. Yeah, and I'll, yeah. they'll say, well, you yeah. lied to me. And I'll be like, oh, you lied to me. It's we're even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk. No, it, 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 external motivators are important in some, in some cases, right? I mean, I have a colleague, uh, Marty Gabala, uh, who's really sort of done a ton of work on hit training to, uh, with, um, you know, short interval sprints and that sort of thing. Um, and so to incentivize their subjects when they really want them to, you know, absolutely, uh, they'll give them a financial, uh, you know, remuneration and they'll say, whoever gets this is your number one and you get, you know, it's undergraduate students, right? So you get a hundred dollars. They're like, Oh, oh that's man. It. you know, so they, they go for it. And I mean, you know, it could be a hundred dollars to an undergrad student or it's a hundred thousand dollars to, you know, some professional athlete, but it's the same type of thing is you're always trying to, you know, whatever it is that motivates you then, uh, yeah, if it's money, I guess, or a free month of training, then, uh, yeah, 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 go for it. That's great. With our current state, a hundred dollars is a few gallons of gas and not much more than that. So yeah, you know, yeah, you know what it's, yeah, it's not even enough to fill up my current car. So uh, electric <laughs> vehicles are looking good for That's sure. Right. Yeah, That's right. Um, I do want to talk about the nutrition side of things and protein in particular. I, we just, we circle back to this so frequently because it just keeps coming up as something that's just so important. I don't think it can be talked about enough. Lots of different ideas about protein intake as far as health, lifespan, uh, questions about intakes of protein and cancer. I mean, where where is your current thinking on where most of us should be as far as protein intake? Maybe, I don't, I don't know if we want to break that down for a day or a week or how you think about those kinds of things, but where are you at currently with thinking about the importance of intaking protein? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely still above the recommended dietary allowance. And I, I've often said to people that I would actually be happy if we just change the, the name of the recommended dietary allowance to the minimum dietary intake. In other words, it's, it's not what's recommended and it's, you know, you're allowed to eat more. And so if you just say that's the minimum dietary intake, I think at least twice that much. And so you go from 0.8 grams of protein per kilo up to 1.6. So it's a, probably about 0.6 to 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight, unless you're, you're fairly overweight. And uh, I heard a brilliant algorithm from a, a guy named Eric Helms the other day that says, if you took your height in, in centimeters, which is another one, okay, we got to do the conversion, but let's say uh, it's that number of grams if somebody's overweight. And it turns out to be a ridiculously good predictor of probably where they should aim. But let's just say it's more than is recommended. It's not as high as some people would recommend. You know, it's definitely, it's close to the one gram per pound, which is the bodybuilding sort of uh, axiom. But um, I don't think that most people are training hard enough uh, to really put themselves into that sort of spot. I do agree that if you sort of quote unquote, overeat anything, overeating protein is, it is, there's less of a downside than there is for carbohydrates and fats. You know, you flip that all over and you've got people, you know, protein causes kidney disease. And that's definitely not true. It's off the table. It's an old hypothesis. It just needs to die. Uh, protein causes your bones to be soft. And that's also untrue, uh, particularly if you're getting adequate amounts of vitamin D and calcium. And the latest one is uh, protein drives cancer. Um, and that's a tougher one to sort of push back against. But again, uh, when you look at the 
uh, observational data from humans, though so associations between protein intake and, and cancer, uh, it's decidedly mixed. So there's some no effect. There's others, low protein is actually a bad thing and people die earlier. So, you know, when you have sort of things that go either side of the equation, you have to ask yourself whether it's a true, what we call, you know, a true signal. Um, so I'm, I'm going to stick uh, until proven otherwise to the twice as much as uh, people are telling you you need uh, and debunk the idea that everybody's getting enough, particularly as people get older. Yeah. Um, because that, that group, when you're beginning now to lose muscle mass, I think is a group that could definitely stand to eat, uh, more protein. Interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I'm probably stealing this from the same podcast episode I was just mentioning with Peter T and, uh, Lane Norton, but I want to say like, if, if, if it were true that, you know, a, a very high protein intake would cause cancer, wouldn't we like kind of sort of see a lot of people who are active and in the gym who are actively working to gain muscle, wouldn't there be an explosion of cancer at some point with them that we may not say this is causative, but like there's some correlation here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To your point, I mean, I think, you know, cancer is a, it's a tough one, right? Everybody says cancer and, and, and they put the umbrella over the top of it as if it's one disease. Um, whereas, you know, uncontrolled cell growth is definitely common to all of the types of cancer, but it's very different in one tissue versus the other. So I don't see a, an over proliferation of certain types of cancers in uh, people who are in the gym. So maybe Again, borrowing uh, a, a line from a good friend of mine, Mike Joyner, uh, that I really enjoy, which is that exercise is the forgiver of many sins, is that that is what is allowing you to uh, do something. And the protein is actually supportive as opposed to being a negative or down regulation or an up regulation, whatever it is in, in people who are not physically active. So I think, you know, again, it comes back um, a lot of the reasons I eat is because I, I enjoy having a beer every now and again and a glass of wine and I, and I like cake, you know, so people say, <laughs> wow, you're eating that cake. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, probably another 30 minutes on the, on the bike tomorrow, but big deal. You know? so, um, yeah. Not to be too cavalier. I mean, I think the point is, uh, is definitely you, you can, you can probably dodge a lot of, um, poor lifestyle or poorer lifestyle choices, uh, as so long as you're physically active. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, as far as longevity goes, I, I, I want to say this is uh, rodent studies and maybe this is what you were referring to earlier when we're talking about longevity and, and restricting protein that mm. if, if I understand it right, it has been shown to increase longevity, but again, it's only yeah. in rodents. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the calorie restriction or the energy restriction is the bigger of the two fields. In other words, that's sort of, it's pretty conclusive that if you, you do that and, and everything up to primates, we've got two actually studies that conflict a little bit with, um, with a certain species of monkeys. So I'm not sure whether that's convincing, but I mean, you know, being lean and keeping a low body weight is sort of, you know, intrinsically, you know, that's a good thing. And so you look at these primates that are calorically restricted and they look much better than the uh, the primates that are sort of, well, I'll call it ad libitum fed or overfed or whatever you want to say. So I guess the question is, 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 is caloric restriction when something is in a cage and not exposed to the environment, not exposed to pathogens like a, you know, like a virus, um, 
you know, are, are, are they in better shape? And you can get the same effects when you restrict protein. And it's probably, a, you know, the, the, the mechanisms appear to be slightly different, but I'm sure that there's some commonality around not promoting uh, growth of tissues that shouldn't be growing. And that's the cancer story. So, you know, uh, from that perspective, I, I, I hedge my bets a little bit on the protein restriction story, which, as you say, is predominantly a rodent story at this point. And go then to we don't have a randomized control trial, so we have to use observational data, uh, and say you know there's there's observations on both sides showing protein restriction is good or less protein is good, and then you know more protein is good. So that's when you sort of go well if you once you have evidence on both sides, to me, then it's a lot of noise and you can't really find the true signal. And so I I stop short of saying what works for rodents is therefore good for people. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. What, one of the, the places where we seem to get more and more noise, I think, is um, the difference between plant protein and animal protein. And yeah. it was yeah. looking so strong for so long, like animals the best, pro- plant protein will not work, cannot work. And now there, it seems like there's more research and study coming out that's saying, yeah, there's, there's a few caveats, but plant protein can actually work for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, I'll be honest and, you know, put my hand on my heart and say, I'd be a crappy scientist if I, uh, if I ever said that, you know, I'm not changing my mind on that, despite evidence that we've even generated in our lab. And probably we are, we, me, uh, are as guilty as some people, uh, as, um, as others of saying that animal protein is superior. We've known that for a long time. The superiority comes from a, a better profile of essential amino acids, a higher digestibility, and maybe the ease of availability, like it was just easy to get your and hit your protein targets with animal protein. Uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when I first started at McMaster, I absolutely, I said, yeah, hands down, uh, animal protein, dairy protein in particular, uh, plant-based proteins, uh, you know, you know, because it was pretty much soy. Uh, 20 plus years later, uh, you look around now and there's pea protein, there's rice protein, there's cricket protein there's you know like it's just enormous the explosion of different sources of protein and people have done work now where they've you know treated proteins they've sprouted them they've uh, cooked them you know things that we probably did discounted before they were an important part of the processing before they actually go into your mouth and when we do the studies and we compare them head to head i find the differences we thought they used to be you know this big and now we're finding if they're even there, they're, they're, they're pretty much trivial for particularly for active people. So I think the other thing that's changed is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a much greater availability of plant-based products. And, uh, so it's easier, if that's the right word to, to hit those protein targets that we once thought were just not achievable with, uh, you know, vegan, uh, but maybe even vegetarian diets, but, uh, Vegan, definitely. I'd be like, oh, you know, you're going to struggle. Um, but now I think the gloves are off. And I think that the the plant-based narrative has uh, something to tell with uh, respect to, you know, pr- preservation and even gaining of muscle. Uh, so I've got to dial back some of what I said before <laughs> and uh, go with that. I was just thinking the two things that keep me humble in life is playing hockey with my buds when they just tear me to shreds every week and then and being in the nutrition world it's so yeah. incredible how many times yeah. we're just like 
I don't know, changing our mind, saying like, I yesterday yeah. it was t- so true, it was this, and now today I'm confused again. It's like constant. Yeah, and it, and it's frustrating, right? People want science to give answers, and they 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 give the best answer based on the state of knowledge, and and yeah, knowledge grows all the time, and uh, everything where we've put plant based, like pretty high quality plant based or plant based blends. Uh, head-to-head against animal uh, proteins, particularly milk-based proteins, um, there's very little difference. The only area where we're still a little bit under-informed is in older folks. And so we need to do some well-controlled studies uh, in people who, you know, are in need of more protein and whether vegan, vegetarian type diets are are still enough for them. But uh, you know, hopefully that research will come around soon. Yeah, it's good news for people that choose any different way of eating that they can still get good results, whether they choose what I do yeah. or not. That's totally fine. I've ton, tons of different yeah. options. I'm not willing to trade in my steak for crickets at this point, but uh, good to know that that might be an option. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I hear you. I I, uh, I, I like a good steak every now and again, but but I, I and again, I, I have tried cricket protein. I was prepared for the worst, but was actually pleasantly surprised. So nice. uh, if you can get around the fact that it's crickets, it, it you know, there's, and I, I don't, I, I've, I've tried all, a lot of foods, a, a lot of different places in the world. And it's sort of uh, not quite fear factor, but I've, I've said, you know what, these people are eating it. Uh, you know, I should, it's just a perception to overcome it. So uh uh, yeah, so I've been impressed with the, the cricket protein, at least that I've tried for sure. Yeah, interesting. That's great. Um, you did mention amino acids. For somebody that's not familiar mm. with amino acids, can you explain, yeah. you know, what they are and and why you know they're part of protein? Obviously, um, but also there seems to be one in particular that just keeps coming up as like the most important one to talk about. Can you enlighten us about that? Yeah, I mean, amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Um, Unlike carbohydrates or fats, which are just fuel for your body, uh, amino acids are the backbones of the protein structures that are our skin, our bones, you know, our muscle, definitely, but our brains, our heart, our lungs, everything. Um, And the one that, you know, particularly for muscle that keeps turning up and it's again and again. And so this is, you know, a big thing in the sort of plant versus animal protein world is the amino acid leucine. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, once that amino acid arrives, it flick, it turns on the process of muscle protein synthesis or making new muscle protein. And the other, the other amino acids then are just the substrates for, for making new protein. So it's come down to the point now where I think if we can match leucine doses between two different proteins, then actually the rest of the amino acids are, I won't say immaterial, but, uh, they're a little bit less important. So if you can get plant-based or if you can get uh, even a very low quality protein and just t- you know touch up the leucine content by adding leucine if you want, um, then things tend to go a little bit better for muscle for sure. Gotcha. I'm glad you brought that up. I, it seems like there's different amounts of protein to get to that critical level of leucine. Yeah. And and yeah. correct my work. I'm not sure if I'm right on this, but I, I want to say I was taught that like with whey protein a shake, you'd be like 27 grams. Most animal protein dosages yeah. would be about 30 to 40 grams. And so I would assume plant protein, you would need, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus. Yeah, yeah, you, you you tend to get up into those types of numbers. The ones that you've uh, sort of given as examples are pretty pretty much spot on. But the difference is now is that there are some plant based proteins, and I know like every I say corn protein, and people goes, "How much protein is in corn?" And I'm like, "Well, not much, but we grow a lot of a lot corn, of corn. <laughs> and, and and we don't we don't eat it all. I mean, that's so 
you know, a lot of it gets distilled into ethanol and everything else like that. And some is animal feed and everything else, but we can process corn to isolate what little protein it has. And for, you know, and people, I don't know why, but it, it's very high in leucine. So you can blend corn protein with other proteins and get up to that leucine dose at manageable amounts of protein. So, you know, if you had 30 grams versus say 30 grams, I, I think the response would be just about identical. So, um, you know, there are some plant source proteins that are hyper in leucine and everybody wants to know why. And I'm like, I have no idea. Like it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a botanist, right? So, um, but that's just the way it's turned out. So the, it's, it's blending some of these proteins uh, that's particularly important. I mean, I think most sort of people understand beans and rice together are the, that's the vegan uh, blend that, you know, you go ev everywhere in the world and they figure that out. So, um, but yeah, some proteins, uh, corn protein, which is, you know, a South American staple in uh, any type of um, sort of bread that they make. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty high quality protein. Eat that with some, some beans or, uh, you know, some meat and uh, you, you're in good shape. Wow. So interesting. So when we're thinking about, you know, the meals that we eat or every like event where we're eating something, if, if all things were equal, as far as the protein amount intake in a day, but somebody was eating a smaller amount more frequently mm. versus somebody yeah. that was having a bigger bolus less frequently, would we, yeah. would it be fair to say that the person getting the bigger bolus is less frequently? would be triggering um, muscle protein synthesis through taking enough leucine? Is that is that fair? Yeah, it, it, I think, again, this is another one where I've got to rewind a little bit some of the stuff I said earlier in my, <laughs> my career and say it, that variable of like, you know, small meals versus larger meals or whatever. I do think there is a sort of an optimal dose and it's probably, you know, in that 20 to sort of 30 gram range. But um for most people, you know, that's a, that's a small variable compared to just getting the adequate amount of protein that you need within a given day. So let's say that, you know, if it's four meals versus two or some intermittent fasters, it's, it's just one. Um, and I, you know, I would always say, oh, that's not a very good way to do things. But then I see some people intermittent fasting and they're lifting at the same time. And they have some pretty impressive physiques, not to the extent maybe that they couldn't have them a little bit better with more protein, but it doesn't appear to be limiting any sort of gain in muscle that they make. So, you know, from a purely sort of observational standpoint, I think that it matters more to hit your daily protein intake than it does, you know, dividing it up over more meals. But, you know, I, I, the stand pad is to say four eating occasions per day try and distribute your protein evenly. But, um, the evidence on that is thinner, uh, than it once was. Let's just say that. Yeah. So interesting. So I, again, when we're talking about things like exercise, we're saying, generally speaking, you should exercise, you should lift some weights. Yep. Don't worry so much about all of these other variables. Almost sounds like the same thing in protein intake. Like we can maybe talk about how we're going to parse out all these meals and how much protein you're going to intake. But like, yeah. you know, for, for somebody who's 80 years old and they're eating 50 grams of protein a day, just get more, start with that. Just get way more yeah, than you're yeah. getting. However you get it. Exactly. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's somewhat discouraging. And yet I enjoyed it at the same time to say that some of the prescriptions that we cared about a lot, um, I think, you know, once you get into the sort of, uh, what do I need to live better, live longer, live well, um, it's do something and, you know, a lot more than, than nothing and more of something is probably, but the big change 
comes in the initial. So if you can go from 50, you know, to 60 grams of protein, that's probably going to help. If you can go from 60 to 70, then, you know, all of those things, and it's sort of small changes that begin to make bigger differences. So yeah, absolutely. Try and hit that daily protein intake, be physically active, keep a high VO2 max and, and try and stay strong. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not a bad message, right? You like to keep things simple. So yeah, totally. I think you and I have both seen that meme where it's, I think it's water polo, the dudes in the, in the pool. And it's like, if this yeah. is your overall protein intake and he's got a water bottle and pouring a little bit of water on his head and it's like, yeah, BCAAs. and I think it's raining at the same time. And it's like, you know, here, I'm going to take my BCAA supplement. I'm like, dude, you're, you're surrounded. You <laughs> I love that. That's a great point. You yeah, did, you yeah, did yeah. mention fasting. Um, maybe as one of our last questions, I would love to ask you about this, this fasting, it's somebody who just likes to do it. They found that they're not very hungry. It's really convenient. They're spending less money on food. Um, maybe it's helping with their weight control. Do those people need less protein intake when they do eat because they have a better protein recycling turnover autophagy people talk about? Great, great question. Uh, not sure I can give you a great answer. Uh, if people like intermittent fasting, like a lot of people say when they get up in the morning, I eat breakfast, but I'm, you know, that's me. Um, they say, I just, I'm not hungry. I just don't want to eat. And people say, Oh, breakfast is the most important meal. And I'm like, yeah, it, it is to some extent, but if your first meal ha happens at, you know, 10 30 or 11, as opposed to six or seven, then why would I ever force you to have another eating occasion? Like that's, that's sort of, that's been the, one of the bigger variables that in caloric density that we've, we've shown is increased over time and is pretty strongly associated with people, you know, gaining body weight is the number of eating occasions is now greater than it was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. What people eat is now uh, highly ultra processed, ultra palatable, um, you know, has that Moorish flavor. You put it in there. You're like, I, I got to eat more of that. Um, and that's a tough environment where, you know, you're, I mean, if I wasn't active, uh, like I sit at my desk and do computer work most days. And so I, I, I'd imagine that describes a lot of people who are listening to this, this podcast. And, you know, from that perspective, then you have to program in, uh, exercise or some physical activity because otherwise you spend your whole day, you know, sitting on your butt. So, and that's not a good place to be when you're in an environment with, uh, Easily available, uh, pretty cheap, highly processed, pretty tasty uh, food um, that without maybe some good advice and everything else and be living in the right place and winning the birth lottery, uh, it's hard to, uh, hard to outpace for sure. Yeah. I just, I, I know when I found the people that I love to follow because it's, it's like you, they've done all the studies, they've looked at all the research yet. They can, they can bring things down to a level that a five-year-old would be able to understand. We've talked about all of these different variables and amounts and recommendations and protocols for strength training. And at the end of the day, my hope is that most people listening to this would say, okay, I need more protein. I need to lift heavy things. And it can be that simple for most of us. So we can yeah. go enjoy our lives. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I think you're right. I, I, um, I think it's a little bit of wisdom of hindsight. I won't say age, but maybe age <laughs> too. Uh, is to sort of, you know, ha maybe somewhat have a, a lived experience. And by no means do I think I'm at the end of my life, but I'm probably closer to that end than I am to that end, unless I'm living, you know, in excess of a hundred. Uh, never say never. Um, 
is that things b- really do get pretty simple when you're when you're talking about uh, health. You can probably knock off one or two or three or four habits, and you know as long as you can avoid this sort of you know cancer, which is a tough one. You, know, you, you can do a lot of things right and still get cancer. It's a it's a it, that's just this, the nature of the disease. But trying to avoid obviously heart disease is the next one. Stroke. Uh, type 2 diabetes and everything else like that, which are chronic diseases that really lower your quality of life and definitely, you know, your longevity and your health span. Uh, then after that, but dementia is another one that's co- sort of creeping up into the top 10. And guess what? You know, uh, having a healthy diet and, uh, you know, exercising is pretty good in, against dementia as well. So, you know, a lot of things line up and it, it becomes a pretty simple prescription. It was complex when I was, you know, training for sport X or I had goal Y, um, and it, and, and it can be complex, but it doesn't need to be in my opinion. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Professor Stu Phillips, this has been such a fun conversation. It's been such an honor to have you back on where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm on Twitter, probably mostly uh, uh, more active on that social media platform. I'm Mac Kim prof, M A C K I N P R O F. I have the same handle on Instagram. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty crummy on Instagram, but uh, my kids are giving me lessons. I was told by my three bo- my three boys, the the youngest of which is 17, that old people can't get on TikTok because they ruin it. So I'm not on. <laughs> I still am on Facebook because I'm told that is a place for old people. Um, I, and and so yeah, I, I I try and get around as much as I can social media wise because I do value and you know thanks for having me on the show uh, trying to get some of the knowledge translated for people because it's it's there's a lot of a lot of noise out there and trying to find that signal and you know take away the good stuff is is tough so hopefully somebody learned something while they while they listen to this yeah absolutely well you will find me on facebook um i'm of an age where facebook makes sense to me uh twitter can get a little mean tiktok i'm not going to mess with either i don't want to ruin that um instagram i've really been considering hiring hiring some 13 year old girl to like be our marketing manager on instagram yeah Yeah. it's it's probably a good move (laughs) i'll consider that that's great professor Stu phillips again thank you so very much for this conversation and thank you for your work and thank you for taking time to be on our show today we really appreciate you. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. My pleasure, Casey. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads 
worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body. It's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.